Welcome back to Nature Boost. I'm Jill Pritchard with the Missouri Department of Conservation. Every year, I start celebrating Halloween basically after 4th of July. And of course, what is the most popular, one of the most iconic animals associated with Halloween? Of course, it's the bat. So here with me to tell me more about this creature of the night is MDC bat ecologist Jordan Meyer. Jordan, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I bet I know what your favorite superhero is. (laughs) Spider-Man, right? Of course. Yeah, my daughter loves him (laughs) so much. I read her Spider-Man stories all the time. But for real, did you want to be Batman growing up? Oh, I think every kid wants to be Batman if you grow up in the 90s and get the animated series and all that. Who was your favorite Batman? Uh, Keaton set a pretty high standard early on, but Bale came in really well for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, like I like Michael Keaton, too. Yeah. Well, glad we, we got that out of the way. I was just jonesing <laughs> to ask you that question, really. It's, it's usually a running game with me. Is like, how soon does Batman get brought up? Oh, yeah. Somebody? Yeah. yeah. Oh, for and sure. you're, you're kind of like Missouri's Batman in go. a way, you know? Yeah. I like that. Um, okay, so talking about bats. How many species of bats are in Missouri? Sure. So consistently, we have about 14 bat species here in Missouri. 14? 14, yeah. Wow. We're a lot more diverse. And as as you further go south in the North American uh, continent, that's where things get more and more diverse as you approach the tropics. So okay. we're right in that middle zone of the temperate um, continental U.S. So we have about 14 here. 14. 14. Okay. With a couple that blow in every once in a while when it gets particularly warm. Okay. So what um, would you say there's like a more common species of bat like found statewide through Missouri? Sure. We have quite a few of those actually. Mm -hmm. But um, our most common species that just about everybody runs into are the big brown bat, which is our second largest bat species. And typically the one that is most often found in people's homes and their attics or that they encounter because it's very human tolerant. So it usually finds human tolerant. Our, yeah, finds our structures and will roost in them or hibernate in them. So okay. it's very pro structure. So that's usually the one that people run into and it's a very common species. Okay. As well as our eastern red bat, which is our most common migratory species. So it will uh, migrate to and from Missouri and some will hibernate here as well. But they will often be found roosting on the sides of trees or on the sides of a building as they're passing through and finding a place to rest. So a lot okay. of people run into those as well. All righty. Um, what's the biggest bat? That in would Missouri? be our hoary bat, which is hoary bat. Hoary bat, which is basically like meaning white frosted, and that is like hoarfrost as a word. So that basically is a bat that. If you get the opportunity to take a look or Google search an image of it, it's a very pretty bat. They almost look like little flying lions. They have a very bright yellow face and white frosted fur. So they have a very neat look and they're very large. Um, they weigh you know, upwards to 30 grams, which is like this, as much as a slice of bread. <laughs> So they're not. That's the biggest one. Yeah, that's the biggest one. So they're not huge. By my standards, they're massive. Sure, sure. But for folks thinking or expecting something like a flying fox or something from um, the Mega Chiroptera or the 
bats that are in kind of the Eastern Hemisphere and Southeast Asia, we don't have anything near that size. Right, because some of them, like in like you were saying, in like the tropical area like that, they do get really big. Yes. I actually, I was doing some research for this episode. I was like, what's the biggest bat, you know, in the world? And it's kind of freaky how big they can get. Um, now, on the opposite side of the spectrum, mm-hmm. what's the? I read that the smallest bat mm-hmm. is like the size people can mistake it for a moth. Yeah, so there's a bumblebee bat that is another tropical species that's not around here, but it's a bat that can be basically the size of your thumb oh in gosh. terms of its body size. So not its wings, but its body is roughly like the size of your thumb. So it's absolutely tiny. But the the smallest bat that we have here in Missouri is the eastern small-footed bat, which weighs about four grams, which is like the weight of a penny. So it's still very, very small. So overall, our bats in Missouri are pretty – they're smaller in size. They're pretty – yeah. We're not going to find any flying foxes. Correct. In Missouri. Okay. All right. Um, So I felt really silly because, again, doing research for this, I kept running across – Bats are the only mammals that can fly. And I had kind of a moment, and I'm hoping I'm not the only one who thought about this. I'm like, well, wait, birds, I read that birds are more closely related to reptiles Mm -hmm. because of their feathers. So their birds aren't really mammals. Correct. But bats are mammals. Okay. Yeah. The the main question that I get from a lot of folks is when we talk about – young baby bats being raised during the summer is does the mom come back and regurgitate food like a bird? And that's not the case. So with bats being mammals, they're milk producing. So they come in and they feed their young from milk that they're producing. So the mothers are going out and foraging food, producing the food internally in their bodies and then feeding their young that way. Very well said. And and, and I hope that uh, some of our listeners uh, learned. (laughs) I wasn't the only one who thought. <laughs> Who I, just I get those had that questions moment. all the time. Okay, all right, I get good. do bats lay eggs? Yeah. Do they, do <laughs> they uh, you know, regurgitate their food? I get yeah. lots of questions like that. So it's completely okay. They're a weird <laughs> one. So I'm, I'm okay with people having questions. Thank like that. you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. So uh, this is our October episode. We're getting into Halloween. Um, you have kids, right? Yes. Okay. All right. So, and do they know that you, are they old enough to know what your job is? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Do, do they just think that's the coolest thing ever? They they think it's pretty cool. They, they're they kind of underwhelmed by it because it's just my normal nine to five for them. But right. when I tell them, oh, dad's going out into caves today, or I'm going to be out for a week catching bats in the middle of the night. They're like, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> they want to see pictures. They think pictures are the cool thing, but it's just, it's kind of what dad does. That seems to be a common thing with, uh, I always ask that with biologists and ecologists who work at MDC and you know I talk to them I'm like oh my your job is so cool what do your kids think they're like uh they don't really care (laughs) it's just the normal thing for them and so I just had to ask you that but you know bats are a very popular animal associated with Halloween and I think that is because um, we there is a vampire bat and so tell us about even though there's no vampire bats Mm -hmm. in Missouri can you tell us a little bit about the vampire bat and why it got that name Basically, they have to eat blood. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So the vampire bat is one of the is a bat that has a true blood meal. So it goes out and it forages, and will feed on. The typical example is like livestock. Yeah. Where it will go and um, bite into a, an animal, and its saliva has a bit of a numbing agent, as I understand. So that way, the animal doesn't detect the bite. It 
bleeds from its wound and the bat lifts it up and produces a blood meal that way. And the other kind of more interesting things about vampire bats from a bat biologist's perspective are that they're able to freely crawl along the ground, which is something that not a lot of bats are able to do. Oh, yeah. um, I, so, sorry to interrupt no, you, but you're fine. I remember seeing a picture of a vampire bat and it did look mm. like it kind of had some weird, append, not weird, but mm. different than other you think bats and you just, you know, think wings, but they kind of have like, do they have an extra? No, they're able or... to more or less just perch up and use their body um, in a way that other bats cannot with crawling kind of on their thumbs and, and their forearms that way and having their wings still tucked. And are vampire bats the only ones that can do that? As crawl far as like I'm that? aware, yeah. That is, that kind of makes them even creepier a yeah. little bit because you're a... just so used to them flying. Interesting. Okay. For our bats in Missouri, some live in caves. Mm -hmm. Do some live in trees or in sure. attics, like we were saying? Some are more accustomed to the human mm -hmm. structures. Yeah. So um, you can basically divide bats out into three different categories. And it's really about where they like to spend their winter habitat and where they like to spend their summer habitat. Okay. So the easiest one to get across is our cave obligate bats, like our uh, endangered gray bat here in Missouri. So that's a bat that has a winter hibernacula or cave that it spends the winter in to hibernate. Mm -hmm. And it will have a winter hibernacula that it spends all its winter in. And then when spring comes around, it will migrate to a summer roost, a okay. summer cave. So they go from cave to cave and they select um, different caves to spend the winter in and caves to spend the summer in based on thermal um, temperature within those caves. Yeah. So it's not the same cave that it's not the same winter cave they're going to and it's not the same summer cave they're going. Is it different caves each season? Well, they, they typically have um, what's called site fidelity, site fidelity. So they return to a, a cave frequently. Oh, okay. So they'll go from kind of their winter home to their summer home and back and forth. Okay, gotcha. As we understand. We're still learning a lot about bat migration because it's a very difficult thing to study. Um, but uh, so they have a winter habitat and a summer habitat of both being caves. And then for gray bats, they will also split up where they have maternity caves where mothers and sisters and aunts and grandmas will all gather together and have their young in one singular cave, whereas the uh, males will branch off into bachelor colony. Oh, wow. Then, so that's one group. Okay. Another group is cave hibernating bats. So those are bats that go into caves to hibernate for the winter. But then once summer comes around, they migrate out into summer foraging habitat, particularly forests, but some will select for buildings and, and structures. And they go out and form what's called a maternity roost tree, where the mothers will then roost up into a tree. They usually select for dead and decaying trees that are still standing, often called snags. So uh, trees with cavities and loose bark. They like to get up under there where they can be safe and it has a consistent temperature so that way they're able to have their young in there. And then they'll migrate back to the cave come around this time to in the, um, fall. In the fall to go to um, their winter hibernacula. Then lastly, we have our migratory tree bats. And those are bats that migrate north and south for the winter, very similar to birds, where they will go um, and migrate north during the summer and migrate south during the winter. And then some, if they stay in temperatures that still require hibernation, they will enter into hibernation 
um, in their southern habitats, too. Okay. All right. Well, that's good to know that there's kind of three categories of what their uh, habitat is like. Mm-hmm. So um, are, are bats strictly nocturnal or are some... Is it crepuscular? Yeah. So bats are nocturnal. So they are arousing, you know, after at or after sunset and then going um, back to their roost in, in the morning. We do see peaks of activity from bats if we place out an acoustic detector, which is a device that has a microphone that records bats as they fly by. Mm-hmm. And we can identify the species based off their echolocation calls. Um, we do get peaks of activity during right after sunset and right at sunrise. So there is a bit of a rush hour, as it were. Okay. But bats will often kind of fly out and then return to a roost or roost wherever um, they find suitable habitat over the course of the night to rest and digest and then move on. Okay. So um, there is some peak of activity at sunrise and sunset, but they're nocturnal throughout the entire night. Okay, gotcha. Do you have any tips on how you can identify a bat, mm-hmm. like flying. Whenever I've seen them, I, I feel like their fly pattern and mm-hmm. like their, their wing, you know, you see a bird fly mm-hmm. and it to me, it just seems like there's a clear destination. Like they're just kind of going mm-hmm. in a straight line almost mm-hmm. kind of, but bats kind of seem to be a little more erratic. More erratic. Yeah. Is that, would you agree? Yeah, that's okay. definitely, that's definitely true to the case. And that can be just by the flight pattern and the beats of their wings, but it's also because they're actively foraging too. So they're echolocating as they're flying and detecting bugs or detecting obstacles and they're figuring out what they want to, how they want to respond to that. So there's a lot of kind of start stop behavior as they're flying through the air Yeah. as they're interpreting that information that comes back to them okay. while, while they're echolocating. Yeah. So tell us more about echolocation. What exactly is that? And are bats the only members of wildlife that use echolocation? No, they're definitely not. So uh, echolocation is uh, a behavior of an animal emitting out a sound, usually a very high-frequency sound, where it goes out and it's, the sound wave strikes an object and it bounces back as an echo to that animal. And they're able to take in that sound and interpret that as um, information. So they're able to determine, is this an obstacle? Is this food? Is this something that I want to be close to or away from? And they're able to kind of take that information in. So they're um, out there emitting high-frequency sound waves and getting that information back in return and making decisions based on that. Is it like they're seeing through sound in a way? Not not in the way that like media would have you interpret it. Yeah. It's we, we don't know how a bat sees or how they interpret that within their brain, but it's they do see and they can see in light as well as you and I can. So that's something when we're actually working with bats and, and handling them, we try to avoid shining bright lights into their face because it can cause them discomfort. Um, but they do are they are responsive to that. And that's actually a realm of study that a lot of uh bat researchers are looking into is seeing how those echolocations come back and how bats might be misinterpreting certain objects as other things. So there's like sheets of metal come back very similar to water. So um, some biologists have been able to observe bats like 
kind of checking out this piece of metal going, is this water? Can I drink from this? No? Okay, I'm going to fly away from it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so that's something that people are looking into and trying to learn more about. Okay, so they put out these really high-frequency, high-pitched sounds that mm-hmm. obviously we can't hear. Correct, yeah. So it's um, our larger bat species that migrate, so mm-hmm. like the hoary bat we're talking about, can echolocate down into a range that humans can hear or they can click and and make noises that we can interpret. But most of the frequencies are well and above our human range of hearing, which is good because in terms of decibels of the volume that they put out, it would be like hearing a shooting range going out. So they are very, very loud, but we can't hear them because it's very high frequency. Oh my gosh. But imagine if we could, yeah. that would just be annoying and right. it'd probably do some damage to our ears. Yeah. I think all yeah. the time. Yeah. Because they can echolocate up to the range of 140 decibels, which is like a shooting range from a hundred feet away. Oh, whoa. Yeah. So if you're familiar with like how loud that can be, yeah, mm. it's, they're very loud. Wow. That yeah. definitely puts it into perspective. Yeah. Okay. So echolocation, they're putting out these um, high frequency sounds and mm-hmm. then it bounces off nearby mm-hmm. objects and then they kind of interpret what that is and Correct. and yeah. they use this for feeding yes yeah so they'll use it for navigation so um and and we can see that kind of like i was talking about earlier where uh, you, we can use acoustic detectors to determine what species of bat are nearby because they'll use frequency ranges and echolocate in terms of like how fast they're echolocating how many repeated beats they're making in relation to what type of activity or habitat that they use. So a bat that's flying in very high clutter or looking for food will be making a lot of high-pitched frequencies very close together because they're trying to take in all that information all at once because if they don't tree or if they don't, oh, there's a moth and they'll miss it. So they'll they'll take in that information very quickly, so they have to make very high-frequency, um, rapid echolocation calls. Whereas a migratory species that's migrating at a high altitude where there's no obstructions or anything might be flying with no echolocation at all or is just occasionally echolocating as it goes just to make sure it doesn't find the one tall tree in the field. Wow. Yeah. I'm kind of impressed. It seems like they're doing a lot, you mm-hmm. know, whenever they're active like that. Right. Yeah. So it's it's a very complicated process for them. And that's why when you see a bat flying, they look like they're clumsy or they might bump into <laughs> something because there's a lot going on. And if they get just a little bit of temporary interference, it can be a lapse of information. And while you're flying very fast, that can cause you to bump into things. I'm, I'm glad that you explained mm-hmm. it that way. Seeing them fly like that makes a lot more sense sure, now, yeah. know, knowing what, what's going on. Definitely. Okay. We talked about some some hibernate and mm-hmm. some migrate. Or some are migrating right now. We're in the fall. Yes. Yeah. So we're in the period. So to kind of go from here, uh, the maternity season for bats ends right around mid-August where young of the year are have been born. They've been raised up. They're flying and they're independent from mom. And then the Maternity colonies tend to break up for those like tree roosting bats that I talked about earlier. So they tend to break out and kind of disperse across the the landscape. And that's when I usually start getting a lot of calls from folks going, oh, there's a bat on the side of my house. Okay. Or, oh, I'm seeing a bat that I haven't seen before here. And it's just like with uh, human teenagers. You know, once they get a little older, they get independent from mom and dad, they start wandering into places where mom and dad would be like, no, 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 don't go there. <laughs> 
but they they tend to pop up in places. So that was the phase that we just started leaving out of, and now we're into the migratory phase for bats, where they are making their way to their hibernacula and engaging in fall swarm, which is what we refer to as their mating period. Okay. So they're finding their winter hibernacula. They're going to hang out there for a while. All the males have basically moved there now, and the females are going to be coming in now and looking for opportunities to mate before they go into hibernation. So we were actually just out catching bats on Monday doing that. Oh, really? This week, yeah. Wow. Okay, so what does a female look for in a male? That's something that is relatively understudied right now. Because so for one, bats have this tricky part of their biology being nocturnal. So there's a lot of there's a lot of people out there researching bats, but um, a lot of our understanding of them have really only gained a lot of momentum in the last 50 years. So they're still a relatively understudied species compared to a lot of that game species and others that we know so much about. Sure. So we've They've got that going against them. And the other part of it is they're very secretive. They're hard to catch. They're hard to track once you catch one. Yeah. So it's really tough to actually figure that out yet. So in terms of like mate selection, we don't really know a lot about that just yet. I have to wonder if like, you know, the female's looking for a, you know, decent job, you know, <laughs> does he watch the office? Exactly. I mean... <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's hilarious. Okay. Well, that, that's, that's interesting that there's still, there's still a lot to be, yeah. to figure out about for bats. Sure. Um, why do they hang upside down? Sure. Yeah. So a lot of bat behavior and physiology is built around ways to save energy. Because flying is one, if not the most physically taxing things that an animal can do. And being a mammal that does that, that means you have to have a really fast metabolism. you got to eat like crazy. you got to do a lot of things to fuel that engine. So you have to find ways to be efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, so bats are in the order Chiroptera, which means hand wing. So their entire hands are devoted to wing and powered flight. So what that also means is in terms of like when we were talking about the vampire bat earlier, they're not as mobile using their arms as they'd like to be. So they hang upside down, one, because it's easy. They can fly up, grab on with their hind feet and not have to worry about moving or climbing or doing anything um, to reposition after that. So there's that part. The other thing is bats also have a physiological, muscular, and skeletal process that once they latch onto something with their hind feet, mm-hmm. it engages and holds passively. So they're not actually burning any energy by hanging on like that. Their body kind of locks in, and then they're able to just chill there and go to sleep or do whatever they need to do. That makes me happy because I think at least whenever I think about it, I think, oh, when humans hang on, you're exerting so much energy, you know, your forearms are working, you know, it's like, oh, I'm losing my grip, but it's not like that for them. It's just second nature. They're just like, oh, hanging out. And then, of course, their wings go around their bodies like that. They fold up like that. And then when we go in and do winter hibernacula counts, one of my favorite bats to count is the gray bat because they tend to hibernate in ways that, like, my toddler kids (laughs) – crash and lay down in bed because they'll lay down and or they'll be perched on the ceiling and 
of the cave and they'll have their wings all sprawled out or they'll be laying on top of another bat or something Really? Like that. Yeah, so even even though some are nice and tucked in and do those real tight clusters, gray bats can also lay very kind of loungy. As they <laughs> They're can. kind of starfishing yeah, out, exactly. in, out in the cave. They'll oh, be perched wow. on another bat and just be just chilling like that. Like it's normal. <laughs> That's hilarious. I did not know yeah, that. They're one of my favorite to see. Okay. So uh, getting back, um, we talked about echolocation. You said that mm-hmm. bats aren't the only ones. What, do you know what other animals use echolocation? Yeah, I'm so curious. like a, a great example are dolphins and whales. So they, oh, they will use that, that in terms of underwater as more of a sonar type information where they will be still emitting high frequency clits and looking for food that's under the sand surface or a far distance away from them too. Okay. Now that you say that, I, I think that I knew that. Okay. So, so are they active like all through the night, like catching and feeding and yes they okay. can be like i was uh, talking about earlier their metabolism is very very fast yeah. so bats are uh, a pregnant female bat is easily eating her weight or more in insects a night just to fuel her metabolism as well as feed her young so they are working through the night eating pests eating bugs like crazy trying to fill their stomachs see and that's a great transition into the benefits of bats is that they're great kind of pest control Yes, exactly. So like a colony of big brown bats, that species that's most commonly found in people's homes and attics, a colony of them have been estimated to eat, you know, well over a million insects over the course of a year. So they are putting away across a species literal metric tons of insects off the landscape that could be agricultural pests, that could be human pests like mosquitoes and other bugs that we don't like to encounter and they're cleaning up the air at night, basically feeding like like mad to fuel their their uh, nocturnal habits. They're they're doing the work. Yeah, they're getting it in. So, what other benefits of bats are there? So, another real interesting thing is, um, as we're all aware, bats and diseases became a very hot topic a couple years ago. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of research now going into the immunosystems of bats and how that can play into human health kind of through this one health perspective that's starting to become um, a lot, gaining a lot of momentum nowadays. So a lot of research is starting to look at North American bats because um, the old world bats or those Megachiropteran bats that we were talking about earlier have been more studied, but North American bats have been relatively understudied in comparison. So we're getting out there and trying to see what viruses and diseases bats might be carrying because what's very interesting about bats is they can carry diseases and viral loads that would normally put another animal in their size to death very quickly or be very inducing a lot of trauma and be very obvious and very diagnostic and yet a bat is carrying it like nothing's going on. So there's a lot to look at in terms of their physiology of how they're able to deal with all these diseases and and manage so well. So there's a lot of folks looking at that in in hopes of seeing what that could possibly benefit for us humans too. So there's a lot of research going on right now of um, how could bats possibly get us sick? How can we get them sick? And how do we kind of live in this ecosystem together? A lot to be learned from them. Yes, exactly. So um, 
that's kind of one of the challenges that bats are facing too. I know that there is um, this disease called white nose syndrome. Yes. Tell us about that. So white nose syndrome is an invasive fungal pathogen that um, is a parasitic fungus. Um, it first arrived in the United States on the East Coast in 2006, 2007, and has progressively worked its way across the whole North American continent. It's making its way through the Rockies right now. Oh. And it's a disease that is a, is a fungus that exists in cave ecosystems. And then whenever it encounters a bat, it goes into a parasitic mode, and the tissues of the fungus par- uh dig into the bat and deplete into its metabolism while it's hibernating. And eventually, because it's disturbing the bat and digging into its, uh, you know, its fat reserves and its water um, for the course of the winter, eventually causes the bat to either starve to death or dehydrate over the course of the winter. And the populations of bats have just been decimated since this disease has come in uh, to North America, where caves that... Um, have encountered the disease have experienced population declines as much as 99%. Oh, my god! So it's going from caves with thousands of bats in it to caves with a couple. And it's it's really depressing and disheartening. And as a younger person that has, you know, entered into this field, um, I get excited. I go into a cave and I see 10 bats. I'm like, oh, my gosh, here's 10. This is great. And then I'll be there with somebody who's uh, more experienced than I, and they'll be like, there used to be a 1,000 here. Oh, And gosh. it's it's hard to see and it's hard to experience that moment. But um, so, yeah, bats bats are in trouble and they're, they're – um, Populations are coming way down. So, and it's very difficult to manage this disease. So, what we have to look at and do as conservationists is find ways that we can minimize threats to bats elsewhere that we can control, mm-hmm. like habitat loss or mortality causing from conflicts with humans, and being able to mitigate those so that way bats have their best fighting chance against this disease and only have to fight one threat versus many. So let's talk about that. I actually emailed you the other day sure. because um, part of my job is to help manage MDC social media. And we got a question from somebody who found a bat in their patio umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, and I forwarded to you and I'm like, so, you know, what what do we do? And a lot of times our answer, you know, when people encounter wildlife is um, – leave it be, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, But sometimes if you have a bat in your attic, you can't, you know, there's something that you got to do. So tell us ways that people can minimize their impact if they happen to encounter bats on their property. Certainly. Just like you said, the best thing that I recommend for folks is if these bats that you encounter are in a place or in a situation where there's no direct conflict or threat to you, the best thing that you can do is leave them alone. Mm-hmm. Bats are, you know, migratory and they are, um, they move around on the landscape a lot over the course of the summer. So um, what you can do if you encounter one outside your house, like this perch on a building or anything like that, is to just leave it alone for a couple of days and just wait it out. And more than likely it will move on on its own. Just you being there and observing it is going to cause that bat disturbance. Go, there's a big predator over there. I might not want to come back here. Um, if they're up in your awnings of your porch or something like that, another great thing to do is to just leave your porch light on. Mm-hmm. So if you have bright lights on in the area, they're a nocturnal animal that's trying to find a nice, dark, secretive place to hide so no raccoon or snake or something crawls up and gets them. 
So if they feel like they're being well lit and they're like, oh, this isn't very secretive, they might move on and be like, no, I don't want to be here. So those are kind of the best passive things to do, but that's outside the home and that's mm -hmm. relatively easy to deal with. The other part that is another lar large amount of my calls that I get are folks finding bats that have moved into their attic um, or into an external building or basically any place that's open to the elements that bats are able to find, find a way in. And uh, the first little plug that I'll do is we have some tips and tricks on our website. So if you just go to the MDC website and search bat control, mm -hmm. you'll be able to find a lot of useful tips on there about what to do. But uh, the big thing that we recommend for folks to do is if it's during the summer, specifically June and August, to leave those bats alone until they have exited the maternity period. So those young are... Um, up and independent from mom. So that way, if you put up any type of exclusion device or anything to keep bats out of your house, babies don't get separated from mom because nobody wants that situation to occur. So that's that's really the best thing um, that you can do is, is look into things that are exclusion devices or seeking out um, a control service that is experienced with working with bats and is able to work with you and, and help you through that process. Um, but if it's just an individual bat, you know, not a colony in your attic, but just a bat that happened to, you know, wander in the wrong neighborhood and find its way into your house, um, the biggest things that we recommend for folks to do is to take personal safety into mind. So if there's ever concern about it potentially biting you or it biting a pet or your family, you know, get in contact with your Department of Health and your medical professionals first. Um, if that's not a concern, then you look into how to get that bat out of your house. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I recommend folks to do is to put on a pair of heavy gloves, like gardening gloves are perfect. Find a container that you can get the bat kind of scooped into, as well as I recommend folks to, to wear a mask. And that's not for the chance of diseases coming for you. It's actually more out of a concern of getting that bat sick, like we were talking about earlier. We're still not. We're still learning a lot about how humans and bats interact, and we don't want to have the chance of our bats starting to carry another disease that could be a threat to them. Absolutely. So uh, mask up, gloves up, use a container, scoop that bat up, and then go outside, find a nearby tree, and let that bat perch onto that tree. Perched onto a tree is a natural, normal state for a bat. It's very low stress. They don't like to be contained in the bots. They don't like to be put elsewhere or, you know, held flat on the ground or anything like that. They, they're low stress when they're on a tree. They'll sit there. They'll recover. They'll mm -hmm. likely climb up and fly away and be gone by morning. All right. And then the next best thing to do would be to find how they got in and try to prevent that from happening again. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it, it does happen that people um, get bats in their attic. Yeah, it, it happens frequently, and that's a lot of calls that we get across the department. A lot of them are forwarded to me or handled by staff locally. So um, by all means, if you're ever stuck in a situation confused, give us a call. We'll help walk you through that process and help you understand that. Minimizing human interactions, mm -hmm. definitely. And then what other ways can we help bats with their declining populations? Sure, yeah. So uh, another big thing, just like we were talking about um, earlier, where bats rise and fall out of hibernation, um, frequently. And the more you increase that, that's what white nose syndrome is doing, is the more times you arouse a bat throughout hibernation is 
detrimental to it and it will cause it to you know, more rapidly decay over the course of the winter. Mm-hmm. So uh, another big thing to do is, you know, if you are ever in a situation where you're encountering roosting bats is to just try to leave them alone, low disturbance, move on, let them be, you know, um, if you are ever going into a cave, you know, to make sure that you're there with, you know, landowner permission and that you're following some decontamination and safety protocols and going with folks that are experienced and understand what they're doing to just help minimize things like the spread of white nose syndrome from cave to cave and doing your best to just minimize that disturbance to bats. In addition to that, um, another uh, useful thing that folks can do is to maintain summer habitat for bats. So if you have the opportunity of having a lot of trees on your property and having a tree that's you know, a big ugly snag that is still standing and has a lot of cavities in it, I'd recommend as long as it's safe to keep it standing because mm-hmm. it provides wonderful habitat for bats. Um, If you're in a situation where that's not safe, then uh, my next recommendation is to consider putting up a bat house, which is, you know, a wooden structure with some slats in it that basically allows for roosting habitat for bats. And that's a great alternative to bats whenever there's not suitable habitat nearby. So one of our coworkers, Larry Archer, he is one of the editors for the Missouri Conservationist magazine. I was at his house a few years ago, and he has a lovely uh, backyard, and he put up a bat house. You know, we think birdhouses, you know, those are pretty common, but you don't really encounter a lot of bat houses. It was so tall. Do they have to be really, really tall? Uh, there's a there's a list of recommendations. Uh, there's a great organization called Bat Conservation International, which really stays up to date about the best way to put up a bat house, and they have guidelines that they update frequently. So I recommend folks to check out their website. They have plans and other things that you can look at and research bat houses more. Um, but there's basically two main types that the average homeowner can use, which is a kind of standard bat box. It's like a on-wall mail box, but larger with an open bottom. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's kind of the standard that a lot of people see. Um, and those ones are fine to be, you know, 10 to 15 feet off the ground, preferably on the side of a building. Mm-hmm. Here in Missouri, you want to have them painted like gray, which would help with the sunlight and have it have a more consistent temperature throughout the throughout the summer for them. So it reflects enough light and absorbs enough light to be at the right temperature for bats and then putting it up in a place that predators aren't going to be able to get. Mm -hmm. So you can do it on the side of a building or you can do it on a post as well. But once again, recommending folks to have, you know, either like a little metal skirt that you put around the base of the pole or something to keep raccoons or snakes or something from getting up there. Um, And then the other type, which is specific to poles, is called a rocket box, which is basically a small, tight, rectangular um, prism style of bots that can go on the end of a post and be put up too. I think that's that's probably what mm-hmm. he had. I mean, that thing was up there. It was like a flagpole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, those those are the two main types. But you know, as you go on a on a Google search research binge of them, you can find uh, what called like bat condos, which are spaces that would fill this room in terms of how big they are, wow. structures that are up and can hold, you know, thousands of bats inside them too. Ooh. Yeah. 
So How could, lucky for them. Yeah, you could go all out if you wanted to. You could. You yeah. could. Um, okay, so what about what about limiting your use of pesticides and insecticides and stuff on your lawn? Is that beneficial? Yeah, definitely. So bats are a natural pesticide. So they are going to be out there foraging on insects and in around, um, around humans. So a great thing to do is to limit your use of pesticides so that way the insect biodiversity is high and therefore bat usage of that foraging area will be high too. Okay, good. Good to know. All right, all good, all good tips so we can we can help our bats here mm-hmm. in Missouri. Um Jordan, what you know, one last thing I want to ask you, why did you want to study bats? Why did you want this to be your job? Sure. Yeah. So I um, have always been intrigued and fascinated by rare and endangered species. That was something that I really got a passion for when I started going down this career path in college. And the other part of that, too, was I always just got drawn to kind of the odd animals of of endangered species. So I actually got my start with uh, prairie mossasauk rattlesnake up in uh, northwestern Missouri. So I got my start working with rattlesnakes and having to talk about them and convince folks um, as they came and visited the refuge I was working at and help them understand how these animals are beneficial to us and they're great. They're odd. They're they're scary, but they're really a good thing that should be respected and, you know, frankly adored, at least from my perspective. Oh, yeah. So um, I, I love that opportunity to defend kind of an odd species to folks and really get them invested. And uh, one of my favorite things about this job is whenever I get the chance to bring somebody who's like a little iffy about bats, not quite convinced that they're cute or or, you know, not icky in some way. And then I get them a chance to see a bat in person when I have one in my hand and they can lean in close and see this cute little puppy dog face, you know, and then suddenly they're convinced because they're just flying sky puppies at that point And they immediately fall in love nine times out of 10. So. They are kind of flying dogs yeah. in yeah. a way. So um, the, the big thing that I'd recommend for folks is, you know, bats do not make good pets. And there's wonderful organizations and rehabbers out there that are trained and are experienced and do know what they're doing. And um, the thing that I would recommend most for folks is if they're ever in that situation, to get in contact with us or to get in contact with organizations like Bat World Sanctuary or others where folks are trained and understand how to deal with bats. You want to care for them, but I think, again, the best thing that you can do is leave them wild, and then if they are injured, like you say, contact the the right people. Yes, correct. So what's that like going in a cave to see the bats? Is Do they hear you coming? Do they mm-hmm. wake up a little bit whenever you sure, come in? Do you yeah. try to have to be quiet? Yeah, so that's, that is a big goal of ours is to minimize disturbance. And I have to take a moment to just kind of do a shout out because us doing our winter hibernacula work of going out and counting bats is a huge kind of bat community effort with us, partner agencies like Fish and Wildlife Service, Missouri DNR, um, U.S. Forest Service, U.S. Park Service, uh, non-government organization groups like Cave Research Foundation, Missouri Bat Census, um, just just to name a few, like we have to do this big collaborative effort to be able to go out during the winter and get an effective idea of how many bats there are on Missouri's landscape. So, um, one, it's a huge collaborative effort. Uh, but going back to your question, 
um, going into a, a cave, what we really focus on is minimizing the disturbance to bats. So we'll go into a cave. We're wearing coveralls and rubber boots and everything that we bring into a cave, we sanitize when we bring it out because we're concerned about spreading diseases from cave to cave and we don't want to impact our bats that way. Um, then uh, we go into a cave, you know, we've got our headlamps and our helmets on and we're doing everything our, we can to look up in every nook and cranny of a cave to be able to observe and see where these bats are. And when there's small groups or individuals, we'll do a quick kind of head count and jot that down on our data as we move along. But if there's a big cluster or they're very high up or far away, what we do is we use a telephoto lens with a mega, high megapixel camera. Mm -hmm. and we'll take a really zoomed in photo of that bat cluster and then come back to the office and count the bats up that way. That oh. way we're not standing there with bright spotlights shining directly under them and disturbing them while they're trying to hibernate. Genius. <laughs> yeah, so we take a photo and then I'm able to sit or my, myself or uh, Kyle Jansky, uh, my bat biologist that works with me, um, we'll sit in the office and count bats as we as we go through there, and it's much more comfortable that way with oh, a cup of coffee, sure. yeah, not with your neck craned up trying to count bats. Um, so yeah, we'll go in and move in as as quietly and as low disturbance as we can through through a cave to be able to get an effective idea of what. Um, what our bats are doing. And most of our work is done on MDC property within within our caves, um, which are closed off to the public due mm -hmm. to white-nose syndrome and those concerns. So we have an opportunity to go in there and count those bats. If people want to learn more about bats, are there any resources out there? You were talking about the Bat mm -hmm. Conservation International. Yeah, and our website will mm -hmm. be a great starting point for a lot of people on that, as well as we do a lot of outreach and presentations, as well as partner organizations go out. Um, week of Halloween is, uh, by reputation, bat wheat in our field. So there's a lot of outreach that happens that week of Halloween. So One thing I wanted to mention is that I think October is Bat Appreciation Month. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. so it's it's a very fitting um, uh, topic to feature for our Nature Boost October mm -hmm. episode. Um, that's So it's the last week of uh, – that the week of Halloween is, yeah. is Bat Week. Okay. Uh Often right. you'll see lots of presentations, whether they're over online or they're happening in person. Get out there, get looking for Bat Week, and you'll usually find a lot of material. Is there any type of, like, citizen science efforts that people can participate in? Sure. So there's um, North American Bat Monitoring, which is a way to get out and acoustically survey for bats, which has a lot of citizen science opportunities for that. Um, a lot of it focuses on the acoustic detections that I talked about because that's you know, relatively very easy easy work. You just have to have a specialized piece of equipment and get out there to do, um, to get out there and study and survey for bats that way. Bats are very fascinating creatures, but the very important thing is to appreciate them from a distance. So the, the most we can do, the best that we can do for bats is to just leave them alone and let them go through their lives undisturbed and to grow and repopulate as they face these varying threats that they're going through is the last thing that we want to do is add to those stresses. So the best thing that any person can do for bats is to, to leave them alone and only help them when they need to and when they can. Okay. All right. 
Awesome. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for joining me today. I've learned so much about bats. Thank I really I really appreciate your time today. Anytime. I as I'm sure you can tell, I love talking about bats and I'll just geek out for hours on end with people. So I'm happy to be here. A huge thanks again to Jordan Meyer for the interview. If you want to learn more about Missouri's bats, visit our online field guide at missouriconservation.org or visit Bat Conservation International at batcon.org. And a reminder, we want to hear from you. If there's a topic you'd like covered on Nature Boost, send us a message at missouriconservation.org slash natureboost. Stay tuned for November's episode where we're talking turkey and how cooking up this game bird came to be a Thanksgiving tradition. I'm Jill Pritchard with the Missouri Department of Conservation, urging you to get your daily dose of the outdoors. 